You're listening to 100 p.m. episode 36. You're listening to 100 p.m., the show where we're interviewing 100 expert product people from startups to enterprise and everything in between to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product management. Today, I'm talking to Jonathan Fairman, VP of product at Dscout. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com, the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm Susanna Bate, product coach, startup mentor, and host of today's show. Let's dive right in and say hello to Jonathan Fairman. Uh, my name is Jonathan Fairman. I'm the vice president of product at Dscout. Uh, I think I'm here because I really love what I do. Uh, I was enamored by the 100 p.m. podcast and bringing people to Chicago, which is uh, super cool. You you haven't always been in Chicago. You were in Arizona. That's mm-hmm. where you went to school. And how did you go from school in Arizona to director of product at DScout in Chicago? Tell sure. us about that. Sure. So uh, the classic, so I graduated in 2000, which is quite a while ago in the world of sort of product and technology. Uh, growing up, it was going to be designer of some sort, engineer, artist, something. My program at ASU had an emphasis uh, not just on the core of product design, but of ethnographic research and design planning. So that really opened my eyes at a fairly young age to what it meant to take a deeper look at why you were making decisions in your product. And that very quickly led me to some interesting opportunities in Chicago when I graduated. What was the first product-related job or, or first sort of career job that you had out of school? So uh, I graduated and came immediately to a company called Doblin Group. Doblin is an innovation consultancy, and what we were doing there was user-centered service design and business design. So when it came to understanding someone like Luxottica and what it meant to reimagine selling glasses and the eyewear procurement process. And people have, it's a medical moment, it's a style moment. And how do we start to uh, break those down and see how we can recreate an experience? So I very quickly moved out of physical product through education and into that kind of more experiential space. That was about two years. I missed, I missed getting my hands on things and joined a company called Gravity Tank. Gravity Tank was a little more traditional product design, innovation, with a heavy research bent. And then many, many years later, uh, D-Scout was spun out of Gravity Tank. And so my connection to, to D-Scout and my last almost two years here really did start almost 15 years ago. Well, so you had kind of a fork in the road and then you went your own way and then met back. Came back, yep. yeah. Talk to me about research because I think we're at this really interesting intersection where user experience design is suddenly part of the vocabulary at all the levels in all the industries and more and more and more there are streams of education available for people to get introduced to user experience design and the the user research part is an old this is an older discipline and when you say research it doesn't always sound cool like ux design sounds cool and product management or product design and development sounds cool. So is research cool? Was it cool to you as a young guy to be doing? Uh, research is super cool. I'm a people nerd. And uh, you know, at DScout, that's sort of uh, something we've really embraced, this idea of pe- being a people nerd. Because if you're not curious about people, you're not going to create good product or good service for them. I think when I was young, I have, a, I have a real affable mom. She seemed to know everybody. She was a teacher in my hometown. And so there was a lot of just in every moment out and about as a kid, you were talking to people or you were listening to a conversation. And you know, good product should speak to people. It should inspire people. It should evoke emotion. And without really understanding a person's relationship to that experience, you're, you're not going to be able to get there. I think through the design work alone. One of the, the exercises I typically do with folks that take my class, first first class, is introduce them to this idea that to be a product manager, it's really just about looking at the world differently. And and we all actually, I believe, have this ability. We just may not be connected with it. We're, we get a little bit self-involved. We're kind of living in our, in our own world. And so it's first an exercise, at least as I describe it, of stepping outside of yourself and observing even your own decisions. 
why did I choose that particular brand? Uh, why did I purchase this one and not this one? What did motivate me to make this decision? And then when you start to uh, get bored with observing yourself, then you kind of turn that lens to other people. It sounds like you've been doing this, maybe you've had that lens on your whole life as you're describing. Yeah, you know, even just in reflection of this conversation, it, it seems that way, certainly. And it's, uh, I think it's also, it's re- it is really hard to separate your point of view because it's a very emotional thing. You feel it, you are there, you are experiencing it. And to feel like, well, that's what other people must experience. And I think that's that gut check of uh, like those quick hit research projects. Even if it's a simple interview, a quick interview with a person or two, you can start to see very quickly that there are other ways to look at the world. You know, we're, we're, not, uh, we're not a culture of a single belief. And so I think that the, the power of research and getting out, outside of your own shoes, so to speak, it's just a, a really meaningful and can be a very quick way to see other perspectives. And so going back in time, you're doing research, you kind of, you couldn't have avoided it. You were basically groomed to become this empathetic creature. And where did you pivot into more of the product design aspect? Yeah, so, you know, out of school, it was uh, a real ebb and flow between design and kind of research roles. And, you know, I always, I always enjoyed that kind of just the raw creation process. And uh, it wasn't until, it wasn't until, I think, probably four or five years into my career, that, that moment when, you know, you start your career and you're just like, I will tackle anything. Just give me anything. And that's a good approach. I think that's a very positive way to start your career. But eventually realizing what really motivated me got a, actually a little out of design, the, the subtleties of, you know, like, like we, have an, we have an amazing design team at D-Scout. They're better at design than I am, right? You, you lose some of that edge of your practice, and that's why you bring in, you know, fresh experts. But of sort of crafting that experience and, and designing something that's a little bit different than some of those very unique moments or the physicality of a product and starting to think sort of where that whole experience goes and then taking another step out to... Uh, scratching that kind of business itch that I had of what does it mean to have that strategically fit into a brand's sort of portfolio and, and their impact on their audience. How do you think the point of view as a product person who comes from a, a deep research and design background and, and still very much part of you, how is that point of view different from, you know, you've listened to the show, as you've said, other folks who might be have been born up in digital products or come from a technical product management background. How does your specific lens shape who you are as a product manager? Uh, well, certainly it shapes me good ways and bad. Okay. Uh, I think that's a maybe that's a uh, a realization after quite a few years in a career. Uh, you know, in the, in, uh, the good ways, it gives me a very clear language to speak to design and to speak to the end user. I think ultimately where it starts to make me different from a lot of people coming into the field as a young contemporary would be uh, these issues around measurement, the, the very sophisticated sort of funnel analysis and deciding, making decisions based on some really powerful uh, you know, quantitative uh, measurements of some history of sort of dedicated documentation styles that maybe were derived out of being an engineer in a previous career. Uh, you know, engineers, they, you can't give engineer wishy-washy. It should do mm, this, kind of. You know, hand motion is not a spec. Right. Uh, you know, you get like agile and then like hyper agile and like super fluid uh, kind of, you know, interactions. But an engineer knows what they need. Um, and so there are moments of learning, st- even still to this day, of making sure I'm putting that hat on. I'm being empathetic to their point of view and what it means to truly get a spec. No matter how chaotic a schedule is, you still have to deliver these things. So, you know, certainly pros from being able to speak to one part of, of, uh, of the workflow, but um, coming from design also comes with its own picadillos. Well, and, and I'm going to stay here on this point because we, we pick on developers a lot lovingly on the show, but I like to pick on designers too. So I come back to picking on you, but what I'm kind of hearing you describe, I think, is the validated learning approach that has sort of become really readily embraced in, in product thinking, which is let's experiment, let's measure it, let's make an adjustment based on that insight. And 
to your point, a lot of those measurements are increasingly being leveraged through, as you say, quantitative data, right? Mm -hmm. What is our churn? How can we fix that? What's our retention rate? How can we drive that up? And a lot of the times we can patch up the funnel based on those quantitative insights. And there is an important qualitative aspect to the build, measure, learn sort of loop, Mm -hmm. right? So what I'm hearing you sort of say is, I subscribe to a validated learning approach, but I'm kind of way over on the other side of let's measure it through qualitative analysis. Yeah, I mean, that, and that is, you know, I'm a very numbers-oriented person as just a who I am, but the the experiences I've, I've worked with throughout the arc of my career have primarily been qualitative. Now, at Euromonitor, where I spent eight years building their product team after a year on the consulting team, we were dealing with heavy-duty quant but that was more market research, uh, different than funnel analysis of a user through through your products. And what, what I think is really, really helpful for us at DScout, where we're not dealing with 100,000 users a day. So we don't have, we just don't have the, the luxury of some B2B or B2C products as far as volume of, of data that comes through the platform. So we can start to understand, you know, is this feature worth reproducing if we're going to do a rebuild in this section of the product? Uh, oh, you know, we can take a quick look at, you know, uh, usage stats and, and get a sense of, you know what, we can deprioritize this. We have other things that we think will bring more value. But the flip side of that with the qual is that it's it's just such a galvanizing kind of research, and it's the product we build. So our culture at DScout, while we believe in quant and understand that that can highlight where situations are happening, the qual can really get into the nuance of what is someone experiencing. How are they feeling? What is their emotional response going to be? Even if it's a business tool, you need to have a lot of confidence. Um, even at DScout, so we have this moment where you design your research, you, you build your scout pool, the participants who are a part of the research, and then you hit launch. And we have a couple of like analogies that come out. People are like, hitting the launch button is like packing for a big trip. Right? It's an anxiety moment. Do I have everything? You do the touch every pocket 12 times, I've got it, good. Or you'll get this idea of it's like playing with live ammo because you're releasing research to your participants, the world, it's in the wild. And even though that doesn't happen a lot because intrinsic is just sort of one moment in research, uh, we still see the emotional feedback we get. And when we talk to our customers about that moment, it's so important to understand that we want to give them as much confidence as possible for this thing that is a minute of what could be a one-week, six-week, 12-week arc. And that's just not a quant kind of uh, data point to me. What is your favorite or, or what, um, what are some of your favorite tactics for quickly grabbing research? Yeah. So, know, so, uh, yeah, so I have a, I have a luxury I'm going to get into first before maybe talk about what it means to get outside of that luxury. The, luxury. The, the luxury I have at DScout is that we have a consulting component to our business. So... I can turn and talk to any one of a number of, of power users, and granted, these are a special type of user, they're power users. I can turn to them and ask them you know, anything I want about the product, anything about the, what they're experiencing at that moment. Here's a sketch, how do you feel about this sketch? I can get immediate feedback. Uh, in addition to that, we get to like throw alpha, pre-alpha, really coarse interactive pieces and technology pieces, let them try it out. We don't have to worry about building a, a glossy interface that makes it clear. We want to see if the change we, if the power we give them influences the quality of the research they can do. It's that's, almost like an in-house usability lab that's yeah, happening. Yeah. You don't even have to go down to Starbucks and most of us have to take someone to Starbucks and say, can I buy you this coffee and show you this sketch? Yeah, exactly. You do have a Starbucks downstairs. I suppose you could bring some to them. We could. And seven ways to make coffee here. So we've, we're, we're, we're covered. Uh, well, in that sense, it is a quintessential startup, yes. by the way. Yeah. The, the folks listening can't hear, but... I walked in, open concept, all the computers going, all, all the usual markings you expect to see yeah. in, in a, a vivacious young, I guess it's a young company. Fairly young. We're, you know, we're technically, I'd say we're five years old, okay. uh, you know, really founded in uh, 2012. But yeah, we're like startup. An, do you consider yourself I, a startup? I, I so I do not have uh, as much experience in the startup space as probably a lot of your audience. I came from a big global business, uh, so this feels as startup as I've ever felt. I think of us more though as like an awkward teenager startup <laughs> as opposed to a seed. You know, right. we have a we have a, uh, a mature product. 
Uh, we have customers who have been with us for years who are signing contracts for years further. So we have a, we have a, a, bur uh, a growing maturity about us, but certainly someone's right now is making a pile of grilled cheese for happy hour and someone else is making a whole bunch of mixed drinks. Like there's definitely a good, a good mix of fun. Uh, and startup mentality. Right. Yeah. But and so, well, to go back to the question, yeah. so, you know, part of it is all the traditional things you expect, paper prototypes, getting people in a room, mm -hmm. and the benefit, as we said, of having some of those users be more or less in the building, mm -hmm. so you don't have to go out in the rain to get the data. What about, what about other things? What's worked well for grabbing qualitative data quickly? Yeah, I mean, for us, uh, I, I think building a quick, a clickable prototype and doing a screen share and getting that feedback from a user is is such a nice method. Uh, you can reach out to somebody, schedule a, a, a thirty minute call the next day, and get into uh, some pretty some pretty meaningful feedback. I think in reality, if you can talk to four or five six people with a click through, you're going to you're going to see if there are stumbling blocks or not. Are you going to validate the concept as a whole? No way. Uh, that, that takes sort of more strategic thinking, maybe a, a variety of testing. But to understand if a new way to present your messaging flow uh, is commonsensical or discoverable, you, you can really, through screen share, through clickable prototypes, do some quick stuff. You know, we, we, we challenge ourselves at DScout to use our own research tool, right? That's the, at the heart of what we offer. And it's good because, one, we learn all the pain points because it's not a perfect product, right? That's the nature of product management, criticality and optimism. But uh, that doesn't always suit us because it's primarily a sort of an app-driven interface. So uh, yeah, we find clickable prototypes for reaching out quickly to be sort of our first approach. Uh, we also have an, a sort of a luxury I'm just recalling is that our customers, our users, are user researchers. And they love nothing more than getting to be on the other side of the table. And instead of asking the questions and trying to understand what's happening, they just get to finally be the person who's listened to. Uh, so our users are natural communicators and eager to give feedback. Let's let's go into DScout because mm -hmm. we're 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 right here and, and we're all around it and I think it gives a lot of important context to kind of the things that we're discussing. What, what DScout provides, we have a research researcher focused side, sort of a web app where you design your research, manage your research, and then analyze the feedback. Uh, that you get, and that feedback comes through the app, which are scouts. So the scouts are really research participants, and uh, they would be asked by our clients to go on unique missions. I want to understand snacking. That would start with a researcher maybe programming three missions. And mission one is, tell me who you are and how you feel about health and wellness and how you eat. Just a nice introduction kind of mission. And so the scout through the app will shoot a one-minute video talking about it, maybe take a couple pictures of their cabinet so we can get a early inventory of how they eat. And then we'll have an, the second mission would be for the next week, uh, record an entry every time you snack. And so we'll ask them to shoot a little 30 second video to talk about that snacking moment. And then we'll ask sort of a, the researcher would program it into a series of questions. Were you bored? Were you hungry? Was it at night? What, you know, what time of day was it? You know, sort of behavioral. Were you at home, at work, on the go? And so what happens is that the, you, you've got this collection of snacking moments. And maybe that last mission that the researcher programs in and sends to the app, it's received by the scout, would be just a reflection. Now that you've think, thought about snacking for a month, how does that work? So what you end up, what the researcher ends up with is through remote ethnography, a very quick way to understand the life of a snacker and to build many, many snacking moments. And so it's a, it's a technology window into someone's life. And if, well, maybe I should stop there for a second, but I kind of want to compare it to more traditional ethnography. Yeah, well, I, the only interjection that I want to make is it sounds a little bit like from the, the researcher participant perspective or the, the scouts as you describe them, that it's essentially like being on Snapchat, but with provided context. Yeah, that's. I think that's a great analogy, and, and even you can what, use that for the website if that helps you with your positioning. It might. It <laughs> might. You, you've met Cam, our VP of marketing. I'll, I will. I will uh, let him know, and if he likes it, I'll let him know it was my idea. <laughs> 
true product manager. Yeah. Okay, so go uh, yeah. on. So, so that, that I think I think that analogy is nice. If you think about this, just having never heard of D Scout, we've got a tool that lets a researcher send a series of questions driven and centered around uncovering special moments and capturing that through video and open and close ended questions. And those participants in their day-to-day lives and the moments that they're in the places that they're really experiencing these things can feed back as a diary, in a sense, through the app and back to the researcher. I mean, and this is such a, a, a fascinating idea because, you know, when we talk a lot, when I coach about customer research and customer development and those, you know, famous words, get out the building, and the challenge that comes up inevitably is how many people do I need to talk to and if I'm constrained by geography and can't I just go online, you know, the, the other side of not wanting to leave your computer but somehow get all of that qualitative feedback. And so it sounds like what Dscout also allows for product companies to be able to do is get out of the building remotely without um, sacrificing the look me in the eyes-ness of it. Sure, the, the so emotion. The most articulate moment, but but yeah, the, the emotion, thank you. The emotion about it, the realness of it, the, the imagery of it or the, the mm-hmm. video imagery of it. I, I, yeah, I would agree. And in fact, even to build even further on that is not every moment can be captured in the company of a researcher. What, what's the last thing I do before I go to bed? Or what's my routine when I wake up in the morning? This is not a... And an easy thing to fill out in a survey, right. uh, you know, it just doesn't work that way. It's also an awkward moment to have a researcher living with you, yeah. uh, or longitudinal studies. If you want to understand someone like Fitbit and what does that adoption process look like, how is that uh, expectation shift over time? You know, you get it and you unpackage your Fitbit and it's wonderful. And then you try and sync it and maybe you have trouble. So you've gone from excited to dejected. Right, and we have videos of these moments, but then you achieve your first goal and you're elated and you achieve another one and, and, and you now have an, a, a satisfaction curve of someone's adoption process over 30 days. Right. And at each one of those moments, you can relive uh, the elation or the frustration through these videos and photos. And, and participants presumably are ecstatic to share because we're now in a society of oversharing anyway. It's already kind of part of how we operate. S- certainly. Like, let me get a quick photo of what I'm about to eat. We're doing that all day long without context. Yeah, I mean, but a little of the genesis with Dscout was, oh, everyone's gonna have a mobile phone. What a great conduit to their lives. And then there's this multiplier on top of it of, as you just pointed out, like social media. And I mean, just imagine what the last five years have, have changed how people interact digitally and what they're comfortable saying into their phone. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've, we did some work with the Ad Council about a year ago on online bullying. And we were we had teens, we had a lot of teens as our scouts. And it was this heart-wrenching feedback and, and recollecting of being bullied and witnessing bullying that they were sharing with us and you can kind of see culturally how imagine getting a, a teen to open up to you, a stranger, even if you're, you're a wonderful ethnographer, you're great at eliciting that, but you've got this scared, closed up teen who witnessed their friend being bullied. And these are the kind of moments that can get shared through this platform in a way that we've, we've really never seen in traditional research. Right. Well, the other interesting thing about how it reverses the traditional model of research is, and, and you sort of already intimated this, is you no longer as the research, you know, we always talk about Henry Ford, that great quote, right? If, if I asked people what they wanted, they'd say faster horses. So the advice that researchers get is strategically surface insights. I, I like to describe it as like being an archaeologist. It's like just dust gently around the bones. If you just go right in and try to yank it out, you know, you're not going to get it. And in some ways, it allows us to circumvent that process. We don't need to intrude. People will just open up on their own and, and honestly and, and in this kind of shared private uh, yeah, and in 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 with important context. So if you ask somebody, if you do a intercept in a store while someone's buying hot sauce, and you ask them what else were you considering besides hot sauce, maybe they say mustard, maybe they say vinegar. But when you go to someone's home and you say, "Show me everything that flavors your food. What do you use for big flavor?" and all of a sudden there's garlic. So you've got hot sauce. You got three kinds of hot sauce: salt, pepper, and garlic. And do the hot sauce people think of garlic as a competitor to their product? Right. right? The consumer does. Right. And, and but it's not in the same aisle. 
Uh, it's not in a focus group situation. And that's the, just the power of being in the environment and, and capturing those, those little details that become very actionable, very quick for a product team uh, to take on. I'm getting uh, so excited about seeing the product itself because so I want to go to the the other side we talked about the participants so I'm a product manager or I'm a product company dscout is a tool for me this is a tool for product companies absolutely benefit from absolutely me. so product companies if you're listening this is a tool for you so I can through the interface I don't even need to talk to you. I mean, you're a nice guy and I'm enjoying talking to you, but I can essentially get onboarded with dscout, use the tool, create my own research. Can I select my own scouts? So you have to be a subscriber or enterprise customer okay. to use our, our recruiting tool. Okay. Right? So we presently have a diary tool and a recruiting tool. and that so that's that quick recruit to access so i know certainly anyone who's done research understands the the quandary and the effort that can be part of recruiting uh, so that is for our uh, subscriber uh, enterprise level con uh, customers but we do have a diy we have an assisted project uh, that start to open up some of those potentials but if you have your own participants certainly you can be you could you could really just go to the site sign up use the tool without any any kind of intervention from us uh, at all I love it. Yeah. I love it. But it's, it's to, to be fair, and, and I, th I kind of mentioned it earlier, as a, as a product person for all of us, it is that balance of optimism and criticality. And if you've never done research, you need to take a second. You know, like it's not, uh, you still, you're still doing research. You still have to have that mindset. You still have to think about the subtleties of what it means to write good questions. Right. right? We don't write questions for you. We have templates that you can start with. But, you know, it's not, it's not just a, kind of quick rapid fire it's still because research is important you know you ask a good question you're going to get a good answer you ask a dumb question you might get a dumb answer uh, so there's you know you, you you have to go into it with a with a mindset of I'm here to do research uh, not I'm here to get somebody a video of my user but I think that's just I think that's intrinsic in in, in any kind of sort of thought-provoking task so on the company side uh, for your company customers who is the ideal end user, just to build on that point that you're describing? Sure. So, uh, you know, we, uh, I think the ideal end user is anyone on a product team so that we get a lot of sort of UX research. Uh, we get some on the, uh, some strategy people who want to understand and start forecasting and start planning roadmap work. You know, that that's sort of our sweet spot today. Any Anyone who's ever cared about what a person thinks about their product or how they interact with their product ultimately is a is a potential user of the platform i can imagine for myself it would be dangerous because i would get lost in the just being in the research phase like i love this idea of creating missions and then just sort of sitting back in this portal and getting connected because i think talking to people is one of the most exciting aspects of product management. I mean, I, I would I share very much with you the sentiment of empathy, which is something that you brought up early. I mean, it's just so fascinating to learn how people think and not from a place of judgment or criticism, but just like, huh, Sure. I would never have thought that way. Sure. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, and I think, I, I mean, in that point, I think what's nice to kind of build on the empathy theme for a minute, the... Uh, an in-depth interview or these sort of interactions that we get to have here today, there is nothing better. Certainly, there's, n you know, it's just, it's it's all the texture of human conversation and reality. That's why I came all the way to Chicago. Yeah, to yeah, and thank you for that. Uh, but what's still cool, I think, with dScout or any remote ethnography tool is that you are still getting real moments. And that, that wince that that person is making when they're trying to describe what it means to charge all their devices while they drive, mm -hmm. that's a real wince. And you can see that, and that, that video is telling. But it's also, uh, it's also just a good reminder, I think, of the importance of getting that kind of research done. And more and more uh, research timelines are getting squeezed into product timelines. So a researcher may have, you know, five, 10 years ago, easily six, eight, 10, 12 weeks to visit six cities and sit with you know, two families in each city to make sure they understood how the laundry process worked in everyone's home and it's a three hour site visit and you've got airfare and you've got logistics. And instead of having all th that luxury and it was meaningful and it helped set the stage for the power of research in product and service design. But now it's 
researchers have to work on design sprints and engineering sprints. Mm -hmm. And that risk of we're starting development of this in two weeks. We know we've got some sketches. You know, we need we need some form of insight. And that's where we I need I, you to backfill six months of qualitative insights into five days. Can you go? Yes, please. Time? Yeah. Right. So yeah. DScout facilitates that crazy ask. That's sure. And it, ask. it does. And it's, you know, our, our consulting team uh, does some projects that run very long because we're doing really intense, really exciting kind of work. Uh, but we have plenty of customers where our normal project is set it up on a Monday and Tuesday, recruit uh, Wednesday and Thursday, on Friday, start firing off the first missions, your scouts are engaged, let's say they go through that weekend and into the end of the next week, and you have that last week to take what you've been watching already pour in, because the, the entries, the data just pours in, and you've got a week to kind of synthesize it and put it together and deliver it and share that with stakeholders and invite your your peers into that experience that you're that you're going to share. So really in, in a week or two or three, you can do amazing things. In three, four, five days, you can still do very meaningful work because you can get into 20 people's homes in a day. Yeah, it's that quick deployment that, that you were talking about earlier that I think is, is equally significant. And again, it sounds a little bit like one of the problems, uh, shockingly or maybe not shockingly, that I get a lot is how can I organize all of this research data that I've collected and sort of get it out in front of me? And it sounds like the tool that, that you're designing and building solves exactly that problem. It doesn't just solve the problem of how do I get research far and wide and on demand, but it gives you presumably a well-designed interface for organizing and distilling the data and being with it. Yeah, uh, you know, very much so. And let's just assume it's the best design interface ever okay. for analysis. Right, uh, no. right. the, the, the <laughs> yeah, the reality is if, uh, through intention, most of these research missions are centered around a little 30 second or 60 second video. And that is so it's bite-sized because anyone who's ever coded up a three hour home back to the laundry example, when you code up that kind of work, it takes 12 hours. But when you have 50 one minute laundry moments that are part of an, uh, an entry that came back to you where you had a couple clothes in it and open ended questions, you have very structured qualitative data, which makes it very a very special quick hit thing. So you can say, okay, I've got 50 videos of what it means to carry my laundry down the stairs. And you can sort them on, you know, is the load heavy? Is the load irregular? Is it about the door jam? Do the stairs turn? You know, if you're asking these questions, you're essentially pre-tagged to like slice this up. Uh, and so you can you can get into the insight very quickly. You know, often research, uh, for anybody who's sort of done these projects, it's like an infinity diagram. It's a very physical activity sometimes. You print everything out and you organize them on a wall and then you reorganize them and then your stakeholder comes in and you reorganize them. Uh, it's all the stock photos of product management everywhere that makes it look like we do this really cool stuff. Yeah, or even in this room, like look at this. Yeah. Our culture, you see these grids, like we don't mess around. We yeah. pin up in perfect grids. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the that ability to take qual, which can be messy and unstructured, mm -hmm. and have it in those little bite-sized pieces, lets you share those empath those empathetic moments, I think, much quicker. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I told you I was excited before. You're not doing anything to make me less excited, which I guess is also part of your job. There you go. I want to go back. I told you earlier that I was going to pick on you, and now is the time. feels appropriate. One of the things we talk about a lot in product management is this kind of translator uh, quality that we need to have because we're speaking we're cross-functional team we've got developers we've got designers we've got sales and marketing folks and they all see the world very differently and speak in the world very differently and what do you think makes it hard to work with design centric research centric folks like yourself Mm. If I were a product manager mm. and you were on my team, mm -hmm. and I know there's going to be moments of friction because Jonathan has a very specific way of seeing the world and a very specific set of ideas about what the right process is. Yeah, I think the frustration might be the process. Maybe like, well, let's try it this way. How did this work out? Or, 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 or you know, sometimes being, I'm very comfortable in the loose, unstructured moments of life where let's just quickly put our heads together solve this and move on, where that might disrupt someone's workflow, 
that might disrupt their expectation because on the, on the Monday stand, they didn't know we were going to be doing this later in the day because of that stand is about the day. Right. Uh, these, are, these are probably the things where when you get a design focus, kind of research, soft around the edges uh, mindset, these are the things that, that come out as opposed to I've got an MBA or I've got a computer science degree and strict order, facts, <laughs> schedule, you know, is the way. Right. So that, I, you know, trying to be earnest and honest. That's where I would drive you crazy. <laughs> well, maybe not me. I mean, you know, we, we talk about the values of Agile, right? Individuals and interactions over processes and tools. And Agile is hard in that regard because as much as we all understand, like, you know, you could go back and forth on an email 10 times with somebody versus solve it in two minutes by just jamming it out in a room. And it mm-hmm. sounds like you're the, let's just jam it out guy. People are avoiding you on Slack or wherever because they're like, Jonathan's going to pull me into a room and want to jam it totally. out in a minute. Totally. Totally. No, I, and I mean, ooh, this, is, this is like a session. <laughs> I'm going to feel better when we're done with this. this is I good. told you there was a big yeah, reveal I, while I, you were really here. I like this. Yeah. You something. So you touched on something about, you used the word translate, which is funny because in the last meetup I spoke at, I had a slide about translate. And it's about, that was simply about using someone's terms. When, when sales uses myrrh, learn what myrrh is and, and use their word, not yours. Right. You know, that sort of level of translate. But there's also that need to understand and be empathetic to how everyone works. And in that same presentation, I talked a lot about, as a, a, for research folks, certainly, you have all these tools of understanding your users. Take those tools turn them to your colleagues. You know, make sure you understand their day-to-day life. The plight of the engineer is, is insane. They're juggling 10,000 lines of code that at any one moment, if any little kernel of that code fails, the whole thing comes down, whole house comes down. One semicolon missed and then... Totally, and I'm a lousy speller, so I'm especially (laughs) empathetic uh, to that kind of moment. And I've been bit, I've learned my lesson, I'll get bit again, but that reality of making sure uh, you're being considered how, how, how everyone works. And so at DScout, we're, we're always sort of striving, particularly with the product engineering teams, to keep a little bit more of an asynchronous communication flow. Uh, here's a quick little doc, one pager with an animated GIF about what happened in the test session we did with three people. Mm-hmm. When you have 10 minutes, go for it. Uh, and making sure we're trying to leave those things out there. Because what you can never afford to have happen is communication breakdowns. Because as soon as you stop communicating, everything grinds to a really ugly halt. Uh, whether it means people are building the wrong thing or, or resources are becoming out of alignment, uh, you really you need to make that happen. And so understanding how people, and it could be you know, one sprint team versus another, mm-hmm. might need different communication uh, right. tactics and, ch- and trying to be respectful of that. Is everybody at DScout, you know, just talking about communication, is everybody at DScout in the same office or do you have a distributor? Uh, we are, pr- primarily. We have a couple of technology partners kind of spread over the, all over the place, but that is, uh, that is sort of for uh, peak moments and some specialized tasks. So we are generally all in-house. We have a full-stack engineering team, front-end, back-end, database, iOS, Android, QA, all right here. Right. Uh, you know, we have the... You know, every other business function, you know, marketing, our success team, you know, customer account sort of management, just the, the works. Yeah, yeah I guess, I, you know, we're talking about communication and I'm just curious about your thoughts on what it takes to, I mean, you're sharing, I guess, some of the, the specific things you're, you're using here to facilitate better communication, but any advice for our audience or opinions about how do you be an effective communicator in a cross-functional environment, whether it's a, an in-house team as you have here, or whether it's with distributed resources, you know, you've worked in large organizations, I can imagine you've participated in remote teams as well. Like, how do we get better at communicating with our collaborators? Yeah, I think yeah, just like it's like inspect and adapt, right? If we think about how we're how we're building product, I think it's also how you build your communication flow. You know, set up a process, try it, see how that goes for a month. Ask everyone how that goes. Like, ask for that kind of feedback and and change, and don't be afraid to change. Uh, I think is is a, a very sort of straightforward lesson. Um, there's also just making sure you understand everyone's sort of. Picadillos and strengths and weaknesses, and 
the tenor, you know, like the, the temperature of the room kind of. Like right now, we are cranking. We've got some really big deliverables, some really exciting stuff. But if you drop a firework into that, it's just not going to It's not gonna be pretty, whether it's with the marketing team and changing a date or the sales team and changing a feature that everyone thought. You know, it's – and so making sure that everyone – that you're communicating sort of the right way at the right moment I, I think is important. Uh, and, and always be honest. Good news or bad news, you, just, you need the news. Like don't, don't tell someone – don't, don't – like for example, I would never – hide from our account management team that we're, we, we're not going to do a feature. I'll push and I'll push and I'll push and I'll see if we can get it done. And as soon as I learn that we can't, you have to tell them. It's bad news. They don't want to hear that. It's a bummer. Like, but they need to know that, right? So you can't, particularly for sort of someone young starting their career, it's okay to give bad news. You, know, you don't want to give news like, I'm super hungover and I can't come in today. That's a different kind of bad news. But owning owning the reality of the situation yeah. and giving people, I, it's, I mean, I could get really tangential about it and even the ways it can affect our, our personal lives. But when you control information that's not only yours to control, you take choices off the table for the other person. And I think that is an important aspect of this. It's, yeah, no one wants to come and say, hey, we're not going to be able to do that thing that we said, and certainly not for lack of trying, but I want to give you, whether it's 24 hours, whether it's two weeks, whatever the amount of time, probably not enough, but I want to give you that so that you can have the full array of remaining choices at your disposal to do. Yeah, I totally agree. And actually, what that also makes me think of, uh, it's the worst when product people do it, but is to come not with solutions, but with problems often, right? Like, can you know, instead of saying, can we make this thing do that, whether it's a technological issue or a sales process issue, come with, I'm having this problem. I'm trying to make, I'm trying to achieve X. Any ideas that, of what we can do? I think that's a, you know, that's, because that's our dream as product people. You, you never want someone, hey, I've got this idea. What if when you clicked here, did this? What you want them to come and say is, Hey, I've got this problem. My users always stumble when they're trying to find the files to attach. Right. Right. That's yeah. yeah it's sort how of how can we solve this approach? Sir? Yeah. Yeah. And that's you know I, I think a, a downfall of a lot of product people is this idea of owning the decision. It's theirs. It's theirs to make. Right. And you forget that you're surrounded by experts. And um, if you're lucky, they're not just experts, but they're also really, really smart people who also feel the same way you do and want to make good product. What, uh, let's talk about advice for our audience here. We do this segment called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. What advice would you, Jonathan, who has been in this world of product design and research for a long time, not to age you, but... No one can see this beautiful gray (laughs) coiffed hair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What advice can you give to somebody who might want to get into this world of product management, whether you know, research-centric or uh, rooted in the technology either way. Sure. I think, you know, I, I kind of did a little pre-thinking on this just because I know this is an, a really nice uh, element to all your podcasts. And about, like, getting that job, particularly when you're very young, learning about all the roles, not just the product manager roles, but all the roles that you'll be interacting with sort of day-to-day. What does it mean to talk to a developer? What does it mean to help a uh, product marketing manager get the information they need. Like, when would you talk to that person? Because if you come into it, particularly as a young sort of vantage point, and it's like, oh, I'm a strategic thinker, and you probably are, and you have these vi- this big vision of how you could de- redesign a, a, a service or a product, but, but if you can't communicate that well with the people that it's really going to take to make that happen, uh, you're, going, you're going to stumble pretty hard. So making sure you're fully aware of the context of all the roles around Product management, I think, is is something to really strive for. But it's also, I think, cool is that a lot of people come to product management from engineering or from marketing or from a business degree. And so you've already got a really good grasp on on one of those conduits. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think building on that. Because there's, there, you know, there's lots of great programs, General Assembly, these kind of like boot camp programs. But making sure you're, you're fully aware of the context of everyone you're going to be working with. I think is, is really helpful. We just uh, built a quiz, actually. I'm pretty excited about it. It's uh, pmquiz.100productmanagers.com, and it's a it's the 12-point product manager inspection quiz. And we, we spent a lot of time 
in the analysis piece to make sure that we could give meaningful feedback. And that was one of the pieces is, congratulations, you know, you've got great business acumen. And here's a whole other array of skills and perspectives that, that it will serve you well to get to know. Yeah. That's just like a little plug, but what I love about hearing you speak, you, you're so genuinely about empathy. I know that you're very active here in, in the Chicago tech community. You speak about empathy at a lot of product events. You've brought it up here in this conversation a lot. And in particular, not just, of course, empathy because of your researcher background, but how important it is to have empathy for the colleagues, the internal stakeholders. So you're, you, uh, you practice what you preach. I, I try, I try. I try, yeah, it's nice to hear, thank you. Tell us about the hardest lesson either that you've had to learn as a PM or just what you think are typically the stumbling blocks that PMs have as they get to be. This is kind of the learn the job piece, right? Yeah. How do you learn to be a PM? The Ooh, hard way. The har- I mean, the hard way, I think, uh, is really making sure it's like you always have to keep communication open. And, and if you don't and it kind of breaks down, that is, that is, at least for me, the hardest lesson I've learned of just getting just kicked in the shin completely my, on my own because of, and it can even just be a few weeks. There's, there are teams, costly teams, motivated teams, and that if they're not focused, if they're not you know, being fed the right diet of smart, lean product or the right information, uh, something's, going to, something's going to break. And so sort of back to the good news, bad news, whatever it is, uh, communicate it. You know, be as clear as you can. Be respectful of how people want to be communicated to. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a really, I think, great observation because once people shut down, it's very, very hard to get them to open back up. And if you're lucky, and maybe if you do the, the pre-work that you prescribe, which is get to know people and their point of view kind of coming in, if you're lucky, you start in an environment where it's open to begin with. It's kind of, it's yours to lose, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then just don't lose it. And that requires staying empathetic, staying connected, staying communicative. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Yeah. Cool. What... Uh, what do you love so much about product management? Uh, I, I love that it is sort of that fulcrum and the moment of bringing an experience to life. And there's this, there's that pivot from I have a lot of ideas uh, and people, you know, a good idea is a dime a dozen. Executing and delivering a good idea is ruthlessly hard. And that kind of challenge and then the reward of seeing it happen is, is really fulfilling. I would layer on top of that, finding uh, a subject matter for my career, this idea of this research space, whether at Euromonitor with sort of forecast consumer good data or here at DScout about these really texture-driven insights and uh, the, the, all the qual insight of that quest for knowledge. I really enjoy this space uh, because people are really striving to learn. And I think that's just a, it's like a, just a good goal for everyone to always be, always be ready to learn more. Yeah, we, uh, we can't take the creators out of us as PMs. I think yeah. that much is for sure yeah. proven to be true. What about recommended resources to, to add to our growing list, blogs, podcasts, books, and it doesn't have to be product management centric, but just things that have inspired you or you think might inspire others? Sure. There's um, uh, the uh, first round, uh, their blog, you can get it on a mailing list, I think is great because uh, it's a little startup-ish kind of focused, but the subject matter is wide ranging. And back to that kind of point about understanding everyone's roles, it's nice and fresh to, to be reminded every third week to read what it means to seek funding or what it means to, you know, the paralysis of over-designing an interface or what it means to have really lean engineering. And so they have a nice mix of content and, you know, well-written and just, you know, beautiful website and so I, I appreciate that as a resource. Uh, I, think, I think another resource that I really uh, am, am enamored by, and it may be, again, you know, being 16, 17 years into my career, is young people. Uh, I think that young people are such an awesome resource because they are just like just guns blazing eager. And they're you know, wide-eyed, and they're like, have you seen this? Have you heard about this? Check this out. I just saw this. And, and it's really important to listen because, you know, for me, I, when, I, when I graduated... Arizona State with an industrial design degree, product management didn't exist. Smartphones didn't exist. Flash 
just been released. You know, like like this. You know, and and uh, I can't save you from dating yourself. No, I know. I'm just, cool. I'm cool with it. I'm 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 comfortable. Uh, but this this real issue that young people bring just that eagerness and that curiosity that you know they uncover the weird corner of the internet that you didn't know existed. And so I think, you know, listening, listening to them, they, they, they have a lot to bring. Yeah, it's, it's a good insight. One of our guests, Bettina, shared exactly that sentiment. She's like, I just got to try all the cool stuff that people are doing because that's how I stay connected to a different point of view. Totally. Yeah, I have, I have this like folder on my phone of just, just like weird apps that get sent to me, you know, from my, my brother and his younger friends or people I work with or, you know, young designers. And, you know, I've had some pretty hilarious moments trying to... Figure them out. Trying to figure them out or make the sense it's like, wow, this is a cultural change. Yeah, yeah this is. Yeah, things are different, that's for sure. What, uh, this is my last question for you. I mean, I'd love to sit here and, and chat with you all day, but I'm aware we can't talk forever, Jonathan. Do you have a saying? Do you have a quote, a side of the mug, a belief system, something that drives you as a leader, as a father, as a guy in the world that you want to share with us? Yeah, I have a saying that's probably like cheesy and I'm not sure it's super work related, but if you're not having fun, what are you having? I think that's certainly one. But I think I think maybe more to the point and sort of from the kind of the career side, of course, you should enjoy your career, but is this idea of using civility and respect in everything you do. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Make sure that you're treating them respectfully. Uh, they don't know who you are yet. They don't know what you're capable of and certainly everyone is capable of really amazing things be prepared to be surprised by them because if, if you're not if you don't give someone that kind of opportunity or if you're just going to shun somebody from the beginning you're going to miss something amazing that they could have done for you or with you that's a beautiful sentiment and i just want to reflect to you as well i imagine your team is very lucky to get to work with you as a leader you don't always hear such generous perspective from leaders. And so I think it, I hope it's inspiring for our listeners to know that we can all grow up to become great leaders and empathetic beings and invite an environment of collaboration and inspiration. So I'm sure you have a lot to do with that. And thank you for being on our show. It's been really such a treat. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I uh, echo your sentiment. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please help us get discovered by leaving a five-star rating and review right from your podcast app. Our mission is to help you excel at product management. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great free resources to help you on your path, including all of the recommendations from our fabulous guests week over week. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. We'll be back next week with an all new episode.